All right, everyone, let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Just a few weeks, we're going to be done with the first 11 chapters, which is all doctrinal. It's Paul's theology. And then the last 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, the last five chapters are application. So it's all about how to live out the Christian life. So soon, we are going to be moving from doctrinal to uh, practical. There we go. Okay, we're going to be studying verses 1 through 10 today. And then I think next week we're going to take a big chunk, verses 11 to 20, let's see, 11 to 32. May go back and get another sermon from that section too, I'm not sure, but I want to get a great big chunk because... Verses 11 to 32 have several different major interpretations. It especially surrounds the idea of verse 26 where it says, so all Israel will be saved. And there's three major and different interpretations of what that means. So we're going to be looking at that. God's plan for Israel. But today we're not doing that. Today we're looking at the first 10 verses. Lord, we just pause and come before you with a humble heart, knowing that we cannot understand your word without the power of your spirit to help us. He's the teacher. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you teach us and instruct us? Lord, if I am in error in anything that I understand about this passage, I pray that that would not be passed on to your people or that you would give them discernment. We pray, Lord, that we would understand truth that we would see what you have for us in this passage, Lord, what you're saying, that we would rightly divide the word of truth, and that, Lord, we would take joy and give thanks to you for the truths in it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's go ahead and just read the first 10 verses. Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Back in the 1980s, Debbie and I were part of a church in Fresno, California. 
And the pastor there was very fond of telling us that we were the remnant of the remnant of the remnant. Do you remember that? <laughs> he called it his remnant theology. We were the remnant of the remnant of the remnant. And what he meant by that is that we were very special. We were sort of a cut above everybody else. We were better than all the other churches. We were closer to God. We were more faithful. We were more committed. We were more spiritual. And when he would tell us that we were the remnant of the remnant of the remnant, it had the, the result to kind of puff us up a little bit and make us feel proud and make us feel, wow, I'm special. I'm the remnant of the remnant. And I find that so, so interesting because when Paul talks about the remnant in this passage, it's in verse 5, he tells us that the remnant is only the remnant because they are God's gracious choice. In other words, it had nothing to do with them, that they were the remnant, and it should not puff them up with pride. It should give God all of the glory and all of the credit because it was according to God's gracious choice that they were the remnant. So that's what I want us to delve into today, is this idea of the chosen Jewish remnant, which is what Paul is discussing here in these 10 verses. In order to do that, we need to get a running start because it's been several weeks since we've been in Romans. So let's go back and just review a little bit. Chapter 9 and then chapter 10. In chapter 9, Paul has this great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart for the Jewish people. Because he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from, from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, the Jews are perishing in their sin. They're not believing on Jesus Christ, and that's tearing Paul up. Because he's a Jew, and he loves his Jewish brothers and sisters. And they're headed for hell, apart from Jesus Christ. And this is causing him anguish. And so he's taking us three chapters to show us why this is happening. The first reason that he gives in chapter 9 is because of divine sovereignty. Over and over again, Paul stresses the fact that God has a true people, and he hasn't chosen every physical descendant of Abraham to be part of that true Israel. He chose Isaac, he passed over Ishmael. He chose Jacob, he passed over, I'm sorry, I get these mixed up all the time. He, he chose Isaac, he passed over Esau, isn't that right? Or am I, no, Ishmael, I had it right the first time. Then he chose Jacob, he passed over Ishmael. Yeah, those two are always getting scrambled into my head. Ola, you can edit this all out later. <laughs> Anyways, what we see as we, as we read through chapter 9 is that he makes a choice, a distinguishing uh, choice between one and not another. He says in verse 16, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 18, he has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. Uh, verses 19 to 22, there are two types of vessels that God the potter is forming. Some are vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Others are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. All of this shows us that God is sovereign in whom he's forming this new Israel. And it's not everybody descended from Abraham, it's some of Abraham's offspring. So that's chapter 9. But starting in verse 30 of chapter 9, down through the rest of chapter 10, he switches his emphasis and gives us another reason. It's not all divine sovereignty that's made this 
There's also the choices that Israel themselves have made. They're responsible for their choice to reject Christ and his gospel. And that's what he tells us from 9.30 to 10.21. And in fact, he winds up in chapter 10, verse 21 by saying, As for Israel, God says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. All day long. <laughs> Now try stretching out your hands for 15 minutes and see how tired you get. Well, God's been stretching out his hands and the day here is a 3,000 year day because he started back with Abraham a thousand years before Christ came into the world. It's been 2,000 years since then. So for 3,000 years, God has been stretching out his hands to the Jewish people. Now why do you stretch out your hands to someone? What's that symbolic of? Come to me. <laughs> I want to embrace you. I want you close to me. Like you get down on your knees and you say to your little grandchild, come to Grampy, you know? <laughs> come on, I want to hold you, I want to hug you. God is holding out his hands to Israel all day long. But Israel is rejecting Christ again and again and again. So the responsibility is laid on their own shoulders for rejecting the gospel and rejecting Jesus Christ. So chapter 9, divine sovereignty. Chapter 10, human responsibility. Then we come back to chapter 11, and Paul's going to shift back to divine sovereignty again for a portion of time, for these 10 verses. And the question he has in verse 1 is, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Now, why would he ask that question? Because of verse 21. Because God is holding out his hands all the day long, inviting and commanding the Jewish people to come to him, and they're refusing. And so someone could say, well, then is God just so totally fed up with the Jewish people that he's written them off, and he's not going to have anything to do with them anymore? And the answer is no. May it never be. God forbid. That is not what God has decided to do. Even though they have rejected Christ and the gospel, God is not completely through with the Jewish people. God is still going to work amongst the Jewish people. Now, as we work our way through verses 1 to 10, you're going to notice there's a difference between verses 1 through 6 and 7 through 10. In verses 1 through 6, we have the election of Israel's minority described for us, and then verses 7 through 10, it's the rejection of Israel's majority. Verses 1 through 6, the elect amongst Israel. Verses 7 through 10, the hardening of the rest, is what he talks about. So let's, first of all, let's delve into this first six verses, the election of Israel's minority. And Paul's going to give us three examples here to show us that God is not totally through with Israel. First example is Paul himself. Second example is the 7,000 in Elijah's day. The third example is the remnant in Paul's day. Okay, so let's look at those three examples. First, the example of Paul. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why would Paul start referring to himself as soon as he asked the question, has God rejected his people? Because he's Jewish. He's Jewish. <laughs> and that's what he says here. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And I'm saved. The Lord appeared to me on Damascus Road. When I was going to Damascus, he appeared to me and converted me and saved me. And since I'm Jewish and God has saved me, I'm proof 
positive, I'm exhibit A, that God is not done working amongst the Jewish people. God is still working amongst the Jews, and He's saving some of them. And then He says, in verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Now, in chapter 9, he, did, he told us that God did reject some descendants, physical descendants of Abraham, like Ishmael and Esau. Those are uh, just examples. But there are some that he did reject, but he, does, he has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So it's really important that we understand what he means by that. Who are his people? His people must refer to Israel here, the, the descendants of Abraham, but not every Israelite, not every physical descendant of Abraham. He has not rejected the descendants of Abraham whom he foreknew. Now, he's already used that word in this book before. It's in chapter 8, verse 29. And here it's not referring just to Israel. It's referring to any person, Jew or Gentile, but back in Romans 8.29, he says there, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So who are the ones that God foreknew? See, you can't just say, Okay, that word foreknew, it means to know beforehand. Well, does that mean, for, does foreknow simply mean that God knows something about these people? It can't mean that, because God knows about every person in the world, but here he's, he limits the Jewish people to this group, the ones God foreknew. And since God is omniscient, he knows every detail about every person in the world. So foreknowledge doesn't simply mean that God knows something about people. It has a different meaning. And in Romans 8.29, we see that it has to do with a saving covenant relationship that God enters into with certain people. It involves a plan to predestine them to be conformed to the image of His Son. It starts with Him uh, foreknowing them in eternity past then calling them, justifying them, and glorifying them. So that's what he has in mind when he says in chapter 11, verse 1, God has not rejected his people, the Jewish people, whom he foreknew. Now he has rejected some. He hasn't rejected these. These people have not been rejected. Um, is, we also find that word foreknow in uh, 1 Peter 1.20 where it says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but in these last times has appeared for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So God foreknew Christ. So what does it mean in that passage? That the Father foreknew the Son. Does it mean that God knew about Jesus? No, it's talking about God's eternal plan. This, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, Christ was set apart in God's plan from the foundation of the world to be the savior of sinners. It was a sovereign plan that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit came up with together and entered into covenant together to, to fulfill this plan. So foreknow has the same basic idea of foreordained. It's part of God's plan. 
He knows ahead of time because he's planned it ahead of time, in other words. Okay, let's draw some application out then. The first thing we've seen here is that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That means God will never reject his elect. God will never reject his elect. That's the truth of Romans 11:2. Those Jews that God has chosen will never be rejected. And if God has chosen you unto eternal life, you will never be rejected, according to Romans 11:2. God has not rejected and will not reject those whom he foreknew. Now, of course, the problem here for everybody is, how do I know if I'm one of those that God foreknew? If I'm not, I'm in trouble. I want to be sure that God has foreknown me. In fact, that was what my niece was so anxious about when we had that conversation with her. She didn't know if God had foreknown her. Well, we can get some help here. We can get some help from other passages of Scripture. So let's just quickly and briefly go through several passages that will help you understand whether God has foreknown you. Are you one of his people whom he has foreknown? If that's true, he will never reject you. Well, Acts 13.48 gives us some help. Paul has gone to Pisidian Antioch to preach when we come to Acts 13. And it tells us the result of what happened. Verse 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Have you believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? You have. Okay. You can say yes, affirmative. That's me. Well, yeah. Well, Acts 13, 48 says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. If you have believed, it must mean that you have been appointed to eternal life. What else can we say? But that this was part of God's foreknowing you, foreordination of you. Um, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. That will also give us some help here. First Thessalonians 1, verse 4 and 5. Paul says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Now, how, how were they supposed to know His choice of them? He starts verse 5 with the word for. There's our answer. I'm going to tell you how you know God's choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So how were they supposed to understand that God had chosen them or not? It's how did the gospel come to you? Did it come to you with power? Now, I can remember the first 18 years of my life where the gospel never came to me with power. I went to church. I heard the Bible. I, I heard people talk about Jesus. Never came to me with power. It never came to me with full conviction. And then there was a time when I was 19 years old when that definitely did happen to me. I was transformed. I was changed. The gospel became life transforming to me. That's what happened to these Thessalonians. Has the gospel come to you with power and with full conviction? Well, then you can reason yourself backwards to verse 4 that that means that God 
loves you, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. You have been foreknown if the gospel has come to you with power and with full conviction. Or, let's take another one, 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Okay, he's writing to a certain group of people scattered throughout these different cities and towns in, um, in the province of Asia. He identifies who they are. They're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He talks about the Trinity, the work of the Trinity here. They're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Then he mentions the Spirit. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and then Jesus Christ, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. So, the Father has chosen them according to His foreknowledge. The Spirit then sanctifies them. And the word sanctify means to set them apart. The Spirit sets that person that God has chosen or foreknown, He sets them apart for a specific purpose that they might do something. And did you see what that was? They were to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. So Jesus is commanding all men everywhere to repent. He's commanding men to follow Him, to lay down their rebellion and follow Him as their Savior and Lord and Master. The Holy Spirit sanctifies those God has foreknown, sets them apart, and they now begin to obey Jesus Christ. They begin to follow Him, turn from sin, live for Christ, live for His glory. And it says they're sprinkled with His blood. The blood of Christ cleanses them and washes them. But, but we see again, have you come to obey Jesus Christ and are you sprinkled with His blood? Well, if you're a Christian, you have. Is Jesus Christ your master? Are you seeking to please Him and to obey Him daily? Well, that's the description of this person here. And so you can reason yourself backwards. If that's true of me, if I've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, if I'm justified, if my sins are forgiven, and if I'm obeying Jesus Christ, that's because the Spirit has sanctified me, and it's because the Father has foreknown me and chosen me. And then one final one that might help also. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 23 and 24. Well, we'll start in verse 22. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, he says that Jews, they ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. And when we preach to the Jews, Christ is a stumbling block to them. When we preach to Gentiles, Christ is foolishness to them. But when we preach, we do discover that there are some amongst those Jews and Gentiles who think that Christ is a stumbling block and Christ is foolishness, there is a minority, a remnant, a group among them, and I'm going to refer to them as the called, and Christ is not foolishness to them, and Christ is not a stumbling block to them, Christ is the wisdom and the power of God to these people, the called. So, 
Let me ask you, is Christ the wisdom of God to you? Is he the power of God to you? If that's true, then you are the called, and you are called according to his purpose, and you are foreknown. So you can take these scriptures that we have here in the New Testament, and you can work your way back to decide, if this is true of me, it could only have happened because of the Holy Spirit sanctifying me and calling me and bringing me into his kingdom. And if that is true, it's because the Father has foreknown me. So, if that's all true, God will never reject his elect. Am I foreknown by God the Father? In 1 Samuel chapter 12, there's a couple of wonderful passages that speak to this issue in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 12.22, Samuel is talking to the people of Israel and he says, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. The Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Now why will God not abandon his people? According to Samuel's words here. He tells us. Yeah. God's own reputation is at stake. It's on account of his great name that he won't do it. The Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. For himself on account of his great name. God's reputation for faithfulness is at stake and God is going to uphold his own reputation. God is very God-centered. He doesn't say the Lord will not abandon his people for their sake. It's for his own sake that he appeals to here for himself, for his great name. We have something similar in Psalm 94, verse 14. Psalm 94.14 says, The Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. So God will not reject those he has foreknown and foreordained unto eternal life. So, if we have reason to believe that God has foreknown us because the gospel has come to us with power, because we have believed it when it's come to us, because the Spirit has sanctified us, because we set our face to follow Christ and been cleansed with His blood, then take comfort from these words that God started that work and He will not reject those people that He has foreknown. Now that's the first example Paul gives, himself. The second example he gives is 7,000 other men in the days of Elijah. Go back to Romans 11. Second part of verse 2. Or do you not know what the scripture says in this passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God, not for Israel, but against Israel. And this is what he says. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. Now go back in your mind to 1 Kings 19. Do you remember when Elijah was serving the Lord? Ahab and Jezebel were the king and queen over Israel. Ahab and Jezebel were leading the people of Israel into idolatry to worship the Baal and the Ashtaroth. And Elijah stands out, stands out like a sore thumb in the midst of all of this because he, he has such courage and boldness. He challenges the prophets of Baal. And he says, whoever 
could call down fire from heaven. That will, that's the true God. And he gave them first dibs. They, they slaughtered an ox. They separated its pieces on the altar. And then he says, okay, go ahead. Call on your God. Let's see what happens. And they called on their God from morning to noon. And then Elijah starts making fun of them. Is he on a trip? Is he, is he too busy to help you? Where's your God? Why isn't he doing anything? They started cutting themselves. Look, you know, calling on Baal. Nothing ever happens. And then Elijah says, okay, let's take some pitchers of water and pour it around the sacrifice and douse that sacrifice with water. Fill the trenches around it. And then Elijah has a simple prayer. Lord, show that you are the true and living God and answer by fire. And God sends fire and consumes the water, consumes the sacrifice. And then everybody knows at that point that Baal is not a true God. The Ashtaroth is not a true God. And so Elijah commands that these 450 prophets of Baal would be executed because they're leading the people of Israel away from the true God. And when that happens, Jezebel hears about it and she sends a message to Elijah and says, within 24 hours, you're a dead man. And what's so interesting is that Elijah was so courageous at one moment and the next moment he's running for his life as a scaredy cat. He's afraid for his life. He runs and runs. God comes to him, and in a still small voice, he says, you know, Elijah, where are you? What are you doing here? He has to ask him twice. And let's go back to 1 Kings 19, and we'll read a few verses. Yeah, that's exactly it. A voice came to him at the end of verse 13 and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> Why are you running for your life? Wasn't I there when I sent the fire? Are you, are you afraid to stand with me? And Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then look at verse 18. God says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here God says, I'm going to leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. But if, when you go to Romans 11, Paul refers to that and Paul quotes it this way. Verse 4, what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Back in 1 Kings 19, God says, I'm going to leave 7,000. Paul looks back on it and he quotes, interprets all of that to mean that God says, I have kept for myself. The reason the 7,000 men back in 1 Kings 19 didn't bow their knee to Baal or the whole other nation was gone into apostasy and idolatry, the reason 7,000 didn't is because God kept them from doing it. I have kept. Notice, why did he do it? For myself. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So here's the second principle. The first one is God will never reject his elect. Second one is God will always keep his elect. Here's the principle. God will never leave himself without a witness. Even when Elijah thought he was the only one left, he wasn't. There were 7,000 more. 
And in the church, there have been times when the lamp of God's testimony has burned very dim, but it has never gone out completely. Like, think about the Dark Ages. There's been like a thousand years when the gospel of Christ was obscured because of bad teaching. And there was only one official, recognized, organized church at that time, the Catholic Church. And if you disagreed with them or taught differently from them, you could be persecuted, you could be burned at the stake, which often did happen. If you tried to get the Bible into the hands of the common man, you were persecuted by the church. So there are very dark days within the history of the church of Jesus Christ. But even during those days, God had a remnant. God had people that he had kept for himself. So God will always keep his elect. The first application is negative. God will never reject them. Here's the positive aspect. God will keep them. I mean, God will do whatever he needs to do. He will work positively in people to preserve them and keep them for himself. Now, if that's true, if we're on the right track here, we would expect that this same truth would come up in other places of our Bible. Does it? It does. The apostles speak with one voice. They do talk about the fact that God will keep his people. Like 1 Peter 1. We've been, the men have been praying through 1 Peter on Thursday nights. It's been a blessing. And one of those verses comes up here. Um, starting in verse 3, Peter's praising God that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that we have this inheritance that God has planned for us. And then he says in verse 5, These same people are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So remember that salvation comes in three tenses. We have been saved, past tense. We are being saved, present tense. We will be saved. He's talking about the will be saved aspect here, the future tense. We're looking forward to a salvation ready to be revealed. We have been justified, we are being sanctified, but this is talking about we will be glorified. This is a future salvation, final and future. And he says, God is protecting us by his own power through faith for this salvation that's going to be revealed in the last time. We are being protected by God's power. How much power is that? All power. Omnipotence. God's omnipotence is working to protect, that's what it says, to protect these people for this final salvation. When I was a kid, I'd probably dating my, well, Rob, you might remember this. Debbie will remember, Lost in Space. Remember that? Watch that every day. You guys don't even know what I'm talking about, the rest of you. <laughs> it was a TV show, and in, there was Will Robinson in this TV show, and they had that old robot that was really funny, and they had a force field, and they would they'd be able to put up this force field, and when the enemy shot its missiles at, at the aircraft, the force field went up, and it, they just bounced right off. Well, that's what I think of here. God has got a force field around his people, and that force field is omnipotence. The power of God is protecting us for this final salvation that we are going to experience one day. Jude also talks about this. His, the last two verses of his little letter... Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So he's a, uh, celebrating the fact that God is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in his presence blameless with great joy. The power of God is able to do this. It's not like God saves you and then leaves you and you're on your own and it's up to you whether you make it or not. God preserves, He keeps, He protects, He makes a stand. Do you see this? All these phrases are used in Scripture. God is working in His people, not just to initially save them, but every step along the way. Or 1 Thessalonians. Here's another great passage that helps us understand this truth. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass and you see his point there may the God of peace himself not anybody else may he himself do this what? May he sanctify you, that is, set you apart for himself, and may he sanctify you entirely. Well, what's involved in that entire sanctification? Spirit, soul, and body. May your spirit be sanctified entirely, your body, and your soul. May the spirit do that. And may that be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we know that this can happen to us or will happen to us? Next verse. Faithful is the same one that called you. If God has called you, He also will, not might, maybe. He will. If He called you, He will bring this to pass. God always keeps His elect. And that's the same truth Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or Hebrews 12 too. He's the author and the perfecter of faith. The one who begins is the same one who ends this work of faith in the life, the soul of the Christian. Jesus said in John 6, 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to look to God to continue that work and to perfect the work that He has started in you. Put your trust in Him. Don't put your trust in yourself. We, we do not have... Our, our own flesh it just doesn't have what it takes. But God's Spirit is working and He won't give up on you. If He began the work, He'll perfect the work in you. If you woke up believing in Jesus Christ today, thank God for that. That's the work of the Spirit. Continuing. I've mentioned this many times, but I'll do it again. Pilgrim's Progress has this great scene in it where the devil is pouring water on somebody's fire, their, their faith. He's trying to douse their faith and get it to go out. And, but it won't go out. The, 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 no matter how much water he pours on this little fire, it never goes out and he can't understand why until he walks behind and he sees that there's somebody there feeding gasoline to the fire. 
And that's what the Spirit does. He's pouring gasoline on our faith so that it won't go out, so that he'll preserve us and keep us until the day of Christ Jesus. All right. There's one more example here that he gives. The example of the present Jewish remnant. Look back at Romans 11, in verse 5, and notice how he begins this verse. In the same way then. Now, what does that tell us? What is he doing if he says, in the same way then? He's comparing what he just said and saying, in that same way that this happened, let me tell you about something else that's also happening. In the same way that God kept 7,000 men in Elijah's day from idolatry and apostasy, in the same way there has also come to be at the present time, not in Elijah's day, but right now, a remnant, just like there was in Elijah's day, there is another remnant right now, and this remnant is according to God's gracious choice. So he's making application to his own day. The, the Jews in Paul's own day. The question is, has God rejected his people? And Paul says, no. Just like God kept 7,000 in Elijah's day, God is keeping a remnant right now in Paul's own day. And the way he's doing that is according to his own gracious choice. The King James Version, I actually like the way they translate this a little bit better. They call it according to the election of grace. And what Paul is telling us here is that this election is not according to works, it's according to grace. That's what he means in verse 6. If it is by grace, if this choice is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace and works are like oil and water. Have you ever tried to mix those two? They just separate. You can't mix them up. You can try real hard, but they'll, as soon as you're done shaking that, whatever, they, they separate into two different compartments. And grace and works are like that. You, you can't take works and add them to grace. And you can't take grace and add them to works. You either have pure grace or you have pure works. And Paul is not contrasting faith and works here. Because faith and works are both human activities. He's contrasting grace and works. Grace is a divine activity. Works are a human activity. Paul is contrasting what God does, grace, with what we do, works. And he's saying that this remnant is according to God's gracious choice. Meaning that his choice is according to grace, what God does, not what we do. In other words, the choice is unconditional. It's not dependent upon what we do. It's dependent upon what God does. The grace that he bestows. I don't know if you caught all that, but I'm, I hope so. He's not telling us anything new. He told us the exact same thing back in chapter 9, verse 16. He told us there, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He's saying the same thing here in 11.5 and 6. Robert Haldane, one of the great commentators on the book of Romans, says this at this point. He says, To set aside every idea that this election was the reward of an inherent good foreseen in those chosen, or of anything meritorious performed by them, the apostle adds that it was of grace. It was an unconditional choice resulting from the sovereign free favor of God. 
or Charles Hodge, another commentator on Romans. He says, the election was of grace, not founded on the merits of the persons chosen, but the good pleasure of God. If salvation comes because of anything within us, it is not based on the grace of God. So here's the application. God has always chosen his elect on the basis of grace. This election is according to grace. Free favor, undeserved favor from God. That means that it's not 99% God and 1% us. It's not even 99.9% .9 God and 0.1% us. Because that's mixing grace and works. That's mixing our work with God's grace. It's 100% God and it's 0% us. I'm not saying that there's nothing we do. Yes, we believe, we repent, we follow, we do all those things, but we do that because of the grace of God. He begins the work or we never would begin the work to start with. He initiates the work and he feeds that work and preserves that work to the very end. And that's why Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so that no man may boast before God. Or verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If I could take credit for even a little bit of it, I would boast. If the election was according to works, or according to something I did, that would give me some ground to take some credit, and some glory for this work, and God will not allow me to do that. The truth is, I did all the sinning, and he did all the saving. So I have no ground of boasting at all. I look up and I see, Lord, it is all of you, all glory and honor to you for this work. So folks, don't divide the praise between yourself and God. Because we don't deserve the praise, he does. That's the first six verses. Now let's look at the last four, seven, eight, nine, and ten. The rejection of Israel's majority. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. He says, what Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. What was Israel seeking? Well, go back to chapter 9. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. What was Israel seeking? Verse 31. They were seeking righteousness. They wanted right standing with God. The problem is they pursued it in the wrong way. They tried to get it through the law. They tried to get it through keeping the commandments of God. And it would never be attained that way. Gentiles received it as a gift by God's grace. They were justified freely. These Jews said, no, I don't want that. I don't want it. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 3, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They wanted to be right with God through their own righteousness, keeping the law. So Israel was seeking right standing with God. They didn't obtain it. But those who were chosen did obtain it. And the rest were hardened. Now notice verse 7 talks about two different groups of people. Do you see those two groups? Jews and 
No, not, no. Just read verse 7 again, you'll see it. There's two groups he's mentioning. Those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. You've got those who were chosen, and the rest. Those who were chosen, and the rest. What happens to those who were chosen? They obtain righteousness, this right standing with God. What happens to the rest? They're hardened. So you've got these two groups in Paul's mind. The Jews in his own day that were chosen obtained right standing with God. The rest of the Jews were hardened. The same is true today. There are two groups of people, those who were chosen and the rest. Those who were chosen before they die obtained this right standing with God, this free justification through faith in Christ. The rest are hardened. And the interesting thing is in verse 8, the hardening, we, we, like to, we like to think that God is just sort of hands off and passive and he just watches all this unfold. But that's not how our Bible portrays it in verse 8. It says God gave them a spirit of stupor. You see that? God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. So, God is not just watching this, wishing it were otherwise. God is somehow involved in this whole drama being played out. He t Paul told us the same thing back in 918. That God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Now, let's look at the, the condition of the people that are hardened in verses 7 through 10. First look at the condition and then look at the activity of these people that are hardened. There's three things that make up their condition. They're spiritually numb, spiritually blind, and spiritually deaf. First of all, they're spiritually numb. He says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 29.4. The word stupor, it refers to a person who's insensible to external stimuli. We talk about people in a drunken stupor. And what we mean by that is that they're sort of in their own dream world. Their senses have been dulled. They, um, they're unresponsive to you. They're just in a stupor. You can't get through to them. This is the condition of the man who's hardened. God has given him a spirit of stupor. He's unresponsive to spiritual stimuli. You can talk about the wonders of Christ's love, the glories of Jesus Christ, the beauties of salvation, and this guy is in a stupor. He's unresponsive to spiritual stimuli. It's ho-hum. He could care less. It doesn't make a dent to him. It doesn't make an impact on him. He's unresponsive. He's numb to it. It's like he's got a callus over his heart. He can't feel what you're trying to communicate. There's no feeling there, no spiritual feeling. His senses are dulled and deadened because he lives in a spiritual stupor. Truth makes no impact on him. No lasting impact. So that's the first condition of this hardened person, spiritual numbness. Secondly, spiritual blindness. Look at verse 8. Eyes to see not. God gave them eyes to see not. And also verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened to see not. Spiritual blindness. You can tell someone in this category the most wonderful spiritual truths, and they just can't see them. In fact, Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 2.14, 
A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually appraised. He, he won't get it. He's in darkness. He can't understand them. You can take a man, take a blind man to the Grand Canyon and say, Wow, do you see that? He says, See what? What are you talking about? And that's what it's like when you take an unregenerate person and try to explain the gospel. They might get intellectually something of what you're saying, but they don't get the impact on their heart. It doesn't have life-transforming power to them. Remember 1 Thessalonians 1? We know God's choice of you because our gospel came to you with power and full conviction. But this man's blind. He doesn't get it with power. He doesn't get it with full conviction. The third thing about this hardened person, he's spiritually deaf. God gave them eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. Remember when Jesus was talking to the, the Jews, the Jewish leaders of his day in John chapter 8? He says to them in verse 43, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. They couldn't. They couldn't hear it. They were spiritually deaf to what he was trying to say. And remember all through the book of Revelation, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Not everybody has ears to hear. God gives ears to hear. Most people don't have ears to hear. They're spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, and spiritually numb. That's the condition of this hardened person. Now what activity does this hardened person go through? Paul mentions two of them. First of all, he prizes the gifts more than the giver. And I get that from Romans 11, verse 9, where he quotes David, and David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. So a table, let their table become a snare. So a table is a place of feasting. Right? A place of enjoyment. A place of fellowship. It's a place of, you experience the good things in life that God gives. Naturally good things. Now I'm not talking about spiritual, but just fellowship, goodness, enjoyment. But he says, let their table become a snare and a trap. And I understand him to mean that they so um, focus in on and prize the things that God gives them that they totally ignore and reject the one who has given them to him. So the table becomes to them a snare. It ensnares them because they're not, that table's not leading them to the one who gave the table. It's like in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All men by nature do this. So they prize the gifts more than the giver. The second thing they do is they try to gain right standing with God by working. And I get that from verse 10. He says, let, their, let, let them bend their backs forever. That's the picture of someone with a really heavy load on his back. Let them bend their backs forever. Back in chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, that they didn't want to subject themselves to God's righteousness and so they wanted to seek to establish their own righteousness by working hard at trying to keep the law. And this working hard at keeping the law to be right with God was like a burden weighing down their backs. 
or in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, Peter stands up and he says, why do we why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The law was like a yoke that imprisoned them and, and, and snared them. And it was like a heavy load weighing them down. And God says, you want, you want to be right with me through keeping the law? well, then your back is going to be bent forever. It's going to be bent forever. The Jews sought justification by law-keeping, and God gave them up to their own self-made and self-exalting works-based religion. He gave them up to it. Okay, you want to be right with me that way? Go ahead. You can, your back's going to be bent forever. You're never going to get this load off your back. You're going to carry the weight of the law around until you die. Okay, let's draw out some application from all of this. Number one, we need to understand it's going to take a miracle for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're spiritually numb, spiritually blind, and spiritually deaf. And we could add to that they're spiritually dead. That just didn't come up in the text, but that's true too. That's why it's going to take a miracle. It's like Helen Keller you know, she was blind and deaf. And somehow, what was the woman that taught her? What was it? I don't know. Anyway, that woman was able to... Anne. Anne, okay. She was able to get through to her. And God has to get through to us in spite of our spiritual numbness and deafness and blindness. He's got to enable the blind man to see, the deaf man to hear, the unfeeling man to feel which means that we need to pray. We sometimes think that sinners are sort of in a neutral state and they can just as easily choose Christ or choose sin. They're just, whatever they want to do, they, it's just as easy to go this way as that way. That's not the truth at all. This passage is telling us they're not neutral, they're enslaved. They're blind, numb, and deaf and spiritually dead. It's not that they're, they're neutral and can flip either way they want. They're enslaved by the devil. They're enslaved to their sin. It, it's not that they can just easily wag their head and come out of this thing. God has got to break through into their life or they're never coming out of this thing. So we need to pray for conversions. And you say, well, why would you pray if God has already foreknown those? Because God has commanded us to pray and God works through prayers and God has ordained that our prayers be part of the way He works out His his work in the world and his plan to bring in his people. And also we need to remember that God can remove this hardening. I was once hardened and I bet you were too. Ephesians 4 talks about the fact that that people are hardened. We were hardened just like the rest of this world until God softened our hearts. In Ephesians 4.17 Paul says, This I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. 
He's talking about spiritual numbness, spiritual deafness, spiritual blindness. That's, that was us. But God broke through into our lives. Ezekiel 36 says that he has removed the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. He changed it. He made a difference. He broke through. So do not give up on praying for people that need to be saved. If, if, if a person is in a completely neutral state and they can just as easily choose this way as that way, why even pray? Just let them make the choice. But if they're captive to sin and slaves and slaves of devil, they need to be freed and they need a miracle and only God can provide it. So let's pray. Let's seek God. Let's pound on heaven's door for conversions. Second application God still has a chosen remnant today. Now, here in Romans 11, Paul's talking about the Jewish people. God does have a chosen Jewish remnant. He's going to save them. He's not going to reject them. He's going to keep them. But what is true about Israel is also true about the whole world. For example, there is a remnant of Chinese people that God is going to save. There's a remnant of Russians God is going to chase, uh, save. There's a remnant of Americans, of Mexicans, of Portuguese people. You just fill in the blank. Every, every people group on the planet, there's a remnant. God is going to save them. We know that from Revelation chapter 5, that there's going to be representatives of every tribe, people, tongue, and nation before the throne and before the Lamb, waving their palm branches and saying, Salvation to our God. They're all going to be there. Most of my people have rejected Jesus Christ. Why didn't I? Why didn't you? Was it because you were a little smarter than all those other people that rejected him? Did you just have a little bit softer heart than they did? Were you just a little bit better than them? Paul won't allow us to come up with that reasoning. Paul says grace. The, the chosen remnant is according to God's gracious choice. That's his answer. It's a gracious choice. Folks, Thanksgiving is Thursday. What do we have to be thankful for? There's so much. So much. But I want to leave you just with one scripture and I hope the Holy Spirit will impress this upon your heart to be truly thankful for this. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks to God that you're part of his remnant according to his gracious choice, that you're foreknown, that he has a plan upon your life, that he will keep you, he will preserve you, he will work in you, he won't give up on you, he will see you through to his own glory. Like it says here, it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for his work of grace. We do give you great thanks today, Lord. And we can say with the psalmist, 
not unto us, Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. We think about Israel, Lord. We're thankful, Lord, that you haven't given up on them, that there is a remnant according to your gracious choice that you are going to save. We pray, Lord, for people that we know that are hardened right now, that are spiritually numb, blind, and deaf, and are ignoring and rejecting you. They come to our minds. We love them, Lord. We want to see them come to know the true and living God. And we pray, Lord, that you would make the difference. Lord, work a miracle of grace. Enable them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Take off the calluses from their heart, Lord. Give them sight to see and ears to hear, O oh God, and feel this beautiful gospel of Jesus. Work in them for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.